Let's turn to Exodus 14 this morning. If you've got your Bible, flip over there to Exodus 14. Many of the Reformed confessions tell us that it's not just the, the reading of God's Word, but, it, <clears throat> but it's also the, the preaching of God's Word that is, in fact, the Word of God. And so this morning we approach God's Word recognizing that this is His Word. We left our study last week, God's people hemmed in, you might say. Pharaoh and his armies are pursuing. They've got every intention of recapturing the Hebrew people, enslaving them again. And then God, for his part, has moved his people so that there is a a desert behind them and a Red Sea in front of them. Uh, The trap is set. And quite frighteningly for God's people, they're the bait. No human way of escape. And so with all that tension that we read last week, the prize is really set. Who will win this battle? Therefore, who will get glory? Is it going to be Pharaoh or will it be Yahweh? So we pick up at Exodus 14 and we read from verse 15 to the end of the chapter. Here's God's word. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I've gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. Coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, his horsemen. And in the morning, watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. This is God's word. Let's pray for his help. 
Heavenly Father, how desperately we need the ministry of your Holy Spirit to see and know you as you are in your word, uh, to see what you would show your people and teach us. Father, give us these ears to hear what your Spirit teaches, and would you also be willing to wield in your hand a, a again, a sinful, crooked stick, that I might point this narrow way to Christ Jesus. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. It really is probably the most famous event in the whole Old Testament. Those who don't know anything about the Bible, who don't know anything about the Exodus, have heard of the parting of the Red Sea, but most people don't understand its its meaning. Uh, A Peanuts cartoon, Snoopy, Charlie Brown, and the like, illustrates what I suspect most people think. Again, this is the first time I've ever used a Peanuts cartoon in a sermon. Charlie Brown stands at the base of Snoopy's doghouse. Lucy stands right beside him. If you remember Lucy, she is in the comic strip Charlie Brown's foil. She's a constant source of of teasing and and grief. Charlie looks up at Snoopy as Snoopy is operating with hand puppets. And he turns to Lucy and he says, have you ever seen the entire Old Testament performed with puppets? Lucy says, no, I, I can't say that I have. Perhaps, says Charlie Brown, I should warn you about the next scene. What next scene? The next scene on the comic strip is, is the word splash. As it envelops the scene, Snoopy pours a bucket of water from the top of the doghouse onto Lucy's head. The parting of the Red Sea, says Charlie Brown. And so, if you know the Peanuts cartoon and you've ever read those things, you feel sorry for Charlie Brown usually. So Charles Schultz, of course, meant for you to feel while Lucy stands there with a grimace on her face and her tongue stuck out, that finally the one who gives this boy so much grief has gotten what she deserves. Well, the parting of the Red Sea and the subsequent drowning of Pharaoh and his armies is is more than just a, a splash of water on God's enemies. It's more than just God giving them what they deserve. It's it's more than revenge. This isn't simply God getting even. It's not him settling the score. Now, it has that component, but this is really a grand revelation of the character of God. The Exodus is about the saving of God's people for his own glory. Incidentally, that's exactly what the whole Bible is about. And yet, in the Old Testament, No section makes this more clear than the final battle with with Pharaoh and his enslaving armies. The parting of the Red Sea, the destruction of Pharaoh, teaches us that God destroys his enemies for his glory and for your good. This morning, you ask, how, how, how do I know if I'm one of God's enemies or one of his children? Well, the text shows us the the veil lifted two sides of one cloud, and then finally the ultimate deluge, Uh, we begin with the the veil lifted. We left off last week 
The nation of Israel is sandwiched between the Red Sea in front of them, no path ahead, and the desert behind them. As Pharaoh's armies press toward them, there is no place for retreat, and the narrator uses language and vocabulary to help you to feel the thunder of thousands of hooves of horses trampling toward God's people, chariot wheels humming as they close in on God's people. Verse 10 says, the people of Israel looked up and and behold the Egyptians marching after them and they feared greatly. And it was the intensity of that fear that caused them to, to cry out to God with sarcasm, Moses. Hey, is it because there's no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? And then after several more complaints, Moses says to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The text we began with today at verse 15, God addresses Moses, but he's really addressing the people of Israel. Why do you cry to me? Go forward. As if to say, I brought you here, you've prayed about it in whatever fearful and feeble ways you pray when you feel uncertain and scared and frustrated. There comes a moment, doesn't there, when it's time to just move forward into the one direction that the Lord has made possible. Are you truly stuck between a a rock and a hard place, or are you instead fearful about what you know you must do, and that is to step forward? Behind you is a direction you clearly can't go. In front of you is a direction that you're sort of afraid to go. Charles Spurgeon, preaching on this text, said, in those moments, you must go at once to your duty without any longer deliberation or delay. How many times in your own life have you felt stuck? And yet, you really know there's a path forward. It's just going to require a little more faith than you think that you possess. But you see in the passage that God instructs His people to step forward, verse 15. And He does it before He reveals the plan. God's power and purposes are veiled until... After he instructs them to step forward to the water. As as God turns to Moses, then the veil is lifted. The plan is revealed. Look at verse 16. Lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. Now, the order of these instructions is not an accident. He says, first, step forward. And then, second, I'll open the path ahead. So much of your Christian life is made up of of moments like this, where it seems that the Lord has trapped you between two impossible options. It's only after you pray that the Lord begins to make you see with wisdom that there is a path ahead. It's not an easy path, but it is God's path. It's the only path that He's opened up. Maybe it's more clear than you first thought. The next step forward will require faith. And how kind of the Lord that he would accompany that with clarity. Your first step. And when you take the first step, the veil begins to be lifted. 
And then you can see everything in front of you. But you can't see it fully quite yet. If some of this sounds vague, even ethereal, you only have to wait to your next moment of uncertainty. To that next moment in your life when the options before you seem unclear. To that moment when you feel that your faith is being pressed. And yet the Lord summons you to move ahead. Now for the Hebrew people, what was the purpose of this whole ordeal? Look at verse 17. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. In other words, when Pharaoh brings his nuclear arsenal and follows you into the sea, the most mighty fighting force on the face of the earth, when I bury it, he'll know. You see, this is about God's glory. Not about pouring water on Pharaoh. It's, a, it's a, a revelation of God's character. They must know that I am Yahweh. And in the coming moments, there will be no more discussion about who owns the Hebrew people. These are God's children. And his own glory is at stake. His own glory is present with his people. In what will be their deepest battle. The angel of the Lord in verse 19 is the presence of God. So incidentally, when you encounter the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, you'll, you'll almost always notice that he is associated with God himself. He, he's not just a cloud, it's God. And what the people saw as the angel of the Lord is almost certainly the pre-incarnate Christ. And what does he do? He does what the Christ always does. In the interest of God's glory, for the certainty of the salvation of God's people, to ensure that God's rescue really does happen, the angel of the Lord moves behind them and becomes a glorious shield. The one standing in front of them to lead them forward repositions himself behind them to shield them from the pursuing enemy. You see the spiritual comfort that is present in a passage like this? I mean, it may not be what you expected. I, as Presbyterians, we've talked a lot about Christ as a shield from the righteous wrath of God. We've talked about propitiation. Christ, even as he absorbs the wrath of God, turns away the wrath of God. And so we think of God as a shield in that way. But friends, the shield who is Christ also stands behind you. To make sure that the salvation really does happen. Christ shields you from the pursuit of Satan and the attacks of the evil one. And so in a spiritual sense, you really are stuck between a, a rock and a hard place. In front of you is a holy God who offers you this promised land. But there's an ocean of sin that divides you from the promised land. Behind you, Satan. And he has pursued in hot jealousy. He has no intention of relinquishing your service to him. And at the right time, God sent forth his son to part the waters of your sin. 
enabling you to walk forward in faith because Christ is the only one who has cleared the way. And while all of that was happening in front of you, Christ has also positioned himself behind you to shield you from the enemy's pursuit so that God does exactly what he intended to accomplish. I suspect some of you need to hear that today as you move forward in your own walk with Christ. It might be comforting, even helpful to remember that the Lord also is behind you to shield you from the attacks of the evil one. And you say, I don't know, I keep stumbling and falling. Clearly, the evil one has grabbed hold of me. But the scripture says he is, you might have stumbled and fallen, but he has not grabbed hold of you and he is not re-enslaving you. God saved a people for his own glory. And if you are one of his people, then simply continue to step forward in faith towards your father with no fear that the pursuing enemy possesses more power than the God who has already saved you. Is Christ not still guarding your back? God destroys his enemies for his glory and your good. So the veil is lifted and next, two sides of one cloud. The most famous event in the Old Testament is also an invitation to follow the Lord. The Bible says in this life and in the life to come, you will cast your lot with someone. In other words, you will choose to unite yourself with someone. And it will either be the Lord or the world, or the things of the world, or even yourself. But the one you choose to unite yourself with determines the outcome of your existence. Here, clearly, to follow Yahweh and His Son, Jesus Christ, is life. To follow and trust in anything lesser is death. And you see it first in the cloud. Verse 20 explains that the cloud's positioning, and then it begins to give you a perspective on what it looked like on both sides of the cloud. The pillar of cloud stood behind them, verse 20, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other at all. And it looks to our eyes when we read it in black and white like a paradox. How can it be both dark and light? Well, the side of the cloud that faced Egypt was darkness. Of course, it's nighttime, right? That's the natural state of the night. But on the other side of the cloud facing God's people, it was light, even though it was nighttime. So there's darkness or light, and it's a physical picture of, of the spiritual meaning. In the cloud, Yahweh is, is present, and he stands in front of Pharaoh's armies, And yet they remain in the state of physical and spiritual darkness because they have decided to cast their lot with Pharaoh, the one who defiantly opposes God. And on the other side of the cloud, this this nation of former slaves who feebly take that first step forward, God shines his light upon their backs. It is grace. God chooses to shine his light on his people. The structure of the text actually makes the point. And so what reads to us like kind of a strange repetition is crystal clear. Here's the fate of God's people. Here's the fate of Pharaoh's people. Verse 23, the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. Verse 23, 
Verse 22 was that. Verse 23 is this. Egyptians pursued and went in after them in the midst of the sea. All Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, his horsemen. Here is the difference. Pharaoh's armies go in to fight for Pharaoh. God's armies watch while God fights for them. While they stand on the seashore and watch, verse 24, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And then from their own mouths, they say what you and I are beginning to see. God not only makes a distinction, he is at war against his enemies. The Egyptians said it. Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. And standing on the opposite shore, God says, Moses, just raise your hand and I'll do the rest. And so as morning dawned, the Lord returned the course of the Red Sea to its normal spot, panicked. Stuck in the bottom of the sea in mud, Pharaoh's armies, those who have united themselves, they decided to unite themselves with the most powerful fighting force on the face of the earth. They lie, sunk, buried and dead. It was the Lord who did it. Verse 24, the Lord threw the Egyptian forces into a panic. And then verse 27, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. Here's the fate of Pharaoh's armies, verse 28. Not one of them remained. Here's the fate of God's armies, verse 29. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And all of this happened, friends, on two sides of one cloud. The most famous passage in the Old Testament is an invitation to follow the Lord. You will cast your lot with someone, and the one you choose to unite yourself with determines the outcome of your existence. This old Dutch scholar that I keep referring to, not usually by name, is Cornelius Houtman, and he says it really beautifully. He says, the, the, the uncontestable proof has been given that union with Pharaoh Yahweh's adversary results in death, whereas union with Yahweh offers life and freedom, and the corpses themselves are the sign of God's victory, all of which foreshadows for us the full and final victory over God's greater enemy. Revelation chapter 18 tells us that the kingdoms of the earth have been used by Satan for his rule, and they are all cast into the sea. And Satan leads an army of God's enemies and he wields in his hands demonic forces and earthly kingdoms and temptations and sin and corruptions and evil. And then as you keep reading from Revelation 18 to 19 to 20, it is clear. One by one by one, God destroys his enemies. And before he does so, before he ushers in his full and final kingdom, God's people get to witness with their own eyes, he will throw Satan and death and hell into the bottomless lake burning with fire. And those damnable enemies will be tortured and tormented for all eternity, day and night, forever and ever. Pharaoh is silenced. 
He will never come close to God's people again. What longings of your heart does it create to think about the Lord vanquishing the ultimate evil one? And what great comfort to envision a day where the evil one will never be able to draw near to you again. Where you will feel no more his torches of temptation. God destroys his enemies for his glory and your good. The veil lifted, two sides of the same cloud. We close with the ultimate deluge. It's, it's verse 30. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. God's people saw his great salvation and they believed in the Lord. And up to that point, even on the other side of the water, you remember, don't you? They, they vacillated. Should we cast our lot with the Lord? I mean, this is scary. I don't really know if we're going to escape. Should we go back to Pharaoh? I don't know. Slavery sounds pretty good. At least it was predictable. And then in front of their face, the Red Sea parts and God makes a straight way through these insurmountable waters. God designed it this way. So that the same waters that represent a way of escape for God's people represent judgment over his enemies. Now the Hebrew people. Well, they want to belong to Yahweh for sure. No freedom for them will not be easy, brothers and sisters. You're, you're going to see it in the weeks ahead. This is not going to be an easy path. They will continue to be just as fickle as you are and I am. But freedom is really better than slavery. Now, the Bible is not a collection of disconnected stories. This is one grand story of God's salvation. God is redeeming a people for his own glory. And so the New Testament interprets the events of the Red Sea in light of God's grand story. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says that the Red Sea was a kind of baptism for God's people. He says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. In the sea. They were baptized. They passed through the waters by faith. God made a promise to cleanse them, to, to call them out on the other side of the waters. And yet not one of them got wet. What does it mean that they were baptized into Moses? Paul means that they were baptized in a sense by trusting in the Lord through the hand of his servant, their representative, Moses. Which is why Exodus 14, 31 says they feared the Lord, they believed in the Lord, and in his servant. Hebrews eleven twenty nine 29 describes this event as a response of faith. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. Which means that the very same baptism that brought God's judgment to his enemies also brought salvation to God's people. That's the reason that Jesus loves the baptism imagery. Right before he goes to the cross, Luke chapter 12, he says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. 
On another occasion, Salome, who's the mother of James and John, comes running up to Jesus as he heads toward Jerusalem, and she, she tries to lobby for her boys to have a spot, one at his right hand and one at his left. And in Mark 10, Jesus turns to the boys and he says, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with a baptism with which I am baptized? Listen very carefully. You are saved by baptism. But it is not your baptism. And it is also not the baptism of Jesus at the Jordan River with John the baptizer. No. You are saved from your sins by faith in the Lord's servant who at the cross bore the ultimate deluge of the waters of God's judgment. It was his baptism in judgment that gives you life. Jesus endured a baptism of judgment so that your baptism could represent the cleansing that he offers to you in Christ. The only way to pass through the waters of the Red Sea was by faith in the Lord and in his servant. The only way to pass through the floodwaters of God's full and final judgment is by faith in the Lord and his servant. But his servant isn't Moses, it's Jesus. Unlike Moses, Jesus took the floodwaters of the wrath himself. All right, that's a good place to end a PCA sermon. Very good information. What will you do with that information? Terry was a promising elder. He was a candidate for elder at the church that I pastored. He just completed six months of training, officer training, in order to be ready to serve. And he sat there to share his testimony with the session. And he said, you know, I'm still not really sure that I have an assurance of my salvation. I mean, I'm 65 years old, and I keep wondering if I'm elect. The events of the Red Sea offer instruction to Terry and to you. You see, the freed slaves that are on the salvation side of the Red Sea, they had no doubt about the doctrine of election. Clearly, God had chosen to save them in spite of who they were. Clearly, God does something like this for his own glory. But you see, on the salvation side of of the Red Sea, they're also not looking back trying to figure out if they are one of the elect. The act of deliverance is enough for them to turn and say, we want to follow this God. He has saved us. We'll cast our lot with him and no one else, which is exactly what the text calls you to do. If the Red Sea for them was the salvation event, the cross is the salvation event for you. And you don't stand on this side of the cross and go, I don't know if I'm elect or not. You say, that's the kind of God who delivers his people. I want to be counted among them. And you turn in faith to walk. The God who would deluge his own son under the waters of judgment calls you now to follow him through Christ. And the cross is enough. It's enough for you to turn and walk.
Secondly, the path to freedom is rocky. We're going to see in the coming days and weeks how they often stumble and fall. But this event, which is emblematic of the cross, tells us that the decisive victory has already been won. Turn now and walk with Christ ahead in faith. Choose to follow Christ today. And then, brothers and sisters, even if you stumble, wake up tomorrow morning and choose to walk with Christ again the next day and the next and the next and the next. Terry's sitting there at 65 years old wondering... I don't know. Am I saved? Of course you're saved, Terry. You've walked 65 years with the king. And so when you evaluate your own life, we need to ask Terry and maybe ourselves to step away and recognize that the grand story of God's deliverance isn't really about you Anyway, it's always and forever been about God and his glory. And so God destroys his enemies for his glory and your good. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we pray that you would bind your word to our hearts, that we might know you and love you and trust you. That though we stumble and fall at times and though the path ahead seems uncertain, that you have already won a decisive victory and our way forward is clear. Would you help us to wake up today and follow Christ and again tomorrow and again and again and again. We pray that you would receive glory as you save your people. In the name of Jesus we ask. Amen.